Genesis chapter 3. Whoops. I know that's uh, probably the passage that you were thinking of when you thought of Christmas. You're like, oh yeah, Genesis 3, that's totally what, what I'm ready for. Um, but uh, we're starting a new sermon series, uh, just a short one here at the end of the year, entitled Preparing the Way. And the idea there is that we celebrate Christmas and we get excited about Christmas as we talked about with the kids because Christ comes to save us from our sins. But this plan that God had for the salvation of the world is one that begins at the very beginning. And what we're going to find over the next few weeks, I pray, is that we begin to see how God was preparing the hearts of his people, the hearts of all men, for the coming of a Savior. And so we're going to look here this morning at Genesis 3 and and see how God was already laying the foundation for that. And then we are going to turn our attention over the next few weeks to the law and how that prepared us and how that was an example towards us. And then also the prophets and, and the role that they played in helping us to see how this would happen And then ultimately to celebrate Christmas uh, there the weekend right before to celebrate what God has done in the fulfillment of all that he said he would indeed do. And so we're excited about that as well. I just wanted to make a quick note uh, that obviously the video didn't play all the way through. Welcome to technology. But that uh, our IMB uh, Lottie Moon offering has started is starting this month and starts today this being the first day of December and uh, you should have an insert in your bulletin that talks about the week of prayer and we hope that you'll join us in that as we pray for the work of the kingdom that's being accomplished by so many uh, missionaries all over the world but not only by missionaries that are called but by you and by me who God has placed here to be missionaries in our community at this time for these people. Uh, There's a a great quote um, by Hudson, I believe, a a great missionary, that the reason that he could go is because he knew that someone was holding the rope back home, that he knew that he could go and and share the gospel with those that had never known the name of Jesus Christ because there were those he left behind who could share the gospel with with those he was leaving behind. Um, And the same was true for me. I, I struggled when many of you know that we served as missionaries in Madagascar for a while, and I struggled with the idea of leaving people behind that I knew, family members that I knew that did not know Christ. And the only, uh, the, the solace that the Lord gave me was that I was leaving behind Christians as well who could tell them and that God, God had a plan. Um, and so know that, uh, yeah, we, we give to the IMB and we should for the kingdom work, but you and I as well have a responsibility here. Uh, and we've been given a great responsibility. All right, that's the mini sermon for the day. Uh, If you would, uh, hopefully by now you found Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read that whole chapter together. And so if you would stand that we may honor the reading of God's word this morning. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate then the Lord said to the woman what is this that you have done the woman said the serpent deceived me and I ate the Lord said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord, said, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, I pray as, as we read this chapter, Lord, that we would understand the severity of what has happened. Lord, that we would understand the weight and the depth of your words here. That what once was very good has now become cursed. That we who once had a perfect relationship with you are now separated. Oh, Father, that we would understand the gravity of that. That it would not only impact our light of our sin, but that, Lord, it would impact our ability to rejoice in the salvation that we have been given. The salvation that you bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you open our eyes this morning, that we may see your word and see it clearly. That it may change who we are, that it may change how we approach you and how we respond to you, and in turn, how we talk about you to those who we come into contact with. Please be in our presence today. 
Speak to us in ways that only you can. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Chapter 3 has to be one of the most integral parts of all of Scripture. It is the turning point for so much of what we understand about the Word of God. The rest of of Scripture is really dealing with what has happened here in chapter 3. So it's important for us to understand it and to understand it well. And as we do that, what we begin to see as well is the plan of salvation from the very beginning. God did not just think, oops, that didn't work out the way I thought. He didn't say, well, I guess we need to come up with plan B. God knew what was happening. He knew what he was going to do from the very beginning. He knew he was going to show great grace and great mercy and by the means which he would do so. In order for us to understand that, though, it's important for us to see first the garden, to see what, where all of this came from. As we explore the, the chapters before this in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see some pretty incredible things. We see first that everything was good. That's probably the thing that we, we most are captivated by is the goodness of, of all that was created. Everything was per- perfection. In fact, when the Greek translation of the Bible came out, they translated the word Eden, paradiso. It's the word that we get paradise from. That idea of just this place of great splendor, of great perfection, of great joy. And truly, we see in chapter, at the end of chapter 1, God has created all things. He's spoken all things into being, whether it be the, the planets and the stars, the sun and the moon, or whether it be all of the living creatures that we see in our midst. He sees all of it, and he comes to the end of chapter 1, At verse 31, it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's God's evaluation of creation. It was very good. It was perfect. In that perfection was not only all of creation, but it was relationships. And I I think this is what we see more than anything else. It's the relationships that chapter 3 tears into pieces. But at the beginning, all relationships were perfect. The relationship between man and creation was perfect. Man's work was productive. Can you imagine that? That's hard for me to imagine, that everything you put your hand to turns out exactly the way it's supposed to, immediately, without any frustration, without anything breaking. My dad... My dad always teases me. He says, I have never worked on a house project that didn't turn out as hard as it could possibly be with you. Like he goes, I don't know what you've done in life, but I mean everything. Either a tool breaks or I'm dealing with something that someone has done before that then I've got to go back and fix. And so a project that should have taken five minutes takes six months. Um, not, Not that I've had that experience lately. But I mean just... Everything is difficult, and I'm sure you experience that as well as you go through your week. Not everything we touch works out perfectly. There's always frustration, and yet 
Adam experienced his work in creation and his relationship with creation in a perfect way. That's mind-blowing to me. Not only was that relationship perfect between humanity and creation, but the relationship between man and woman was perfect. They had been created for one another. They had been joined together by God himself, first and foremost. They were, she was created to have strengths that compensated his weaknesses, to be a, a companion, to be a, a confidant, and him for her. Can you imagine a marriage where you know each other's thoughts and they are in sync and they are perfect and they are right? Can you imagine a relationship where when you ask, where do you want to eat tonight? It's not followed by 45 minutes of indecision. Can you imagine a relationship? <laughs> Some of you are clapping. Be careful. Can you imagine a relationship? Where your desires are the same and you work together hand in hand pulling the same direction. Their relationship was perfect. They understood the roles that they had been created for. They respected each other's equality. And all was right. Not only were those two relationships well, but the relationship between man and God was perfect. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life, because of my sin, because of the world that we live in, that my prayers just seem to hit the ceiling. It seems like I'm not heard. And there have been times in my life that I'm ashamed to say that I've doubted God. I've doubted whether he was there. I doubted whether he heard me. Adam never experienced those doubts. He never experienced that broken relationship. Up until chapter 3. I love what it says there at the end of chapter 3. After they had committed this great rebellion. This great sin. That it says that God came looking for them. Not that he didn't know where they were. But he wanted to talk with them. And he comes and he approaches. And they hide from him. Like I just don't get that at all. Like we're going to hide from God. This will go well. Like, but they hide. And, and he finally he calls to them. And he says where are you at? And they step out from wherever this hiding spot was. And. He said, and they say, what was going on? And, and Adam says, I heard you, I heard you in the garden, and I hid. Have you ever, you've, you've surely lived with someone long enough that, you know, you might be in bed or, or you're in another part of the house and you can hear someone walking through the house and you know which member of the family it is by their footsteps. You can even honestly tell usually what kind of mood they are in by the sound of their footsteps. And sometimes you find the back door. Oh, Adam knew the sound of God in the garden. He knew who that was. Because he had heard it before. It was a perfect relationship. One that we cannot even begin to fully understand or imagine. But one that we long and we hope for with great assurance in the, in the future to come. This was paradise. This was wonderful. And yet, what we see in chapter 3 is the great rebellion. The great rebellion of man. The great rebellion of evil and of the deceiver, Satan himself. We see it starts with a lie. 
The, the rebellion starts with a lie. Now, we're not given much information here, nor are we given really a ton of information in the Word itself about how evil really started, how Satan got his place, and, and how all of that happened. We understand that he was an angel. Uh, it's alluded to that he may have been the angel of worship, the angel of, of light even, that he had great power and great authority. It's alluded to that he wanted all of the authority and all of the glory for himself, and so he was cast out of heaven. But we're really not told the time frame of that. We're really not told all of the particulars, just that he is there in the garden. And he begins to speak, and as Jesus says, he is the father of all lies. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. And he starts and he says, did God actually say? Notice there, by the way, that he does not use the Lord God. He does not, everywhere else in this chapter and in the chapters before it, it's always Lord God. It's Yahweh and then the name for God. Satan does not dare utter the name, the full name of God. He said, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of garden, of any, of any tree in the garden? He starts with a, a small thing, right? He starts with a small thing. He, he's just trying to get the conversation started. He knows what he is quoting. He knows that he misrepresents God in this question. And Eve's response, right? Eve's response is a lie in itself. She says, oh, we can eat of any tree except for the one that's there, the one in the middle. We're not supposed to eat of that one. In fact, we're not supposed to touch it. You go back and you look at the command of God and it says nothing about touching. But oh, how humanity, oh, how we love to add rules to things, don't we? We like to add our own twist to things. And sometimes it's not even that bad. But it's just our way of having control over something that was not ours to control. So she says, we're not supposed to eat it. We're not even supposed to touch it. Lest we die. Satan goes on. And here he uses maybe his greatest tool of all. He uses the half-truth. It's still a lie. But as, we, as the saying goes, the greatest lies have just a little bit of truth in them. The, the best lies have just that sliver that makes them seem trustworthy. He says, you're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There's some half-truth in there. Adam and Eve don't die immediately, do they? They don't take of it and just drop dead. By the way, I love Adam in this picture, and by love, I mean I just, he's such a chicken. Adam is standing there with her. It says he was with her. But what does he do? He lets her taste the fruit first. Like, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like a deer. Have you ever noticed that the buck always lets the doe go in the field first, and then he comes out? He's not stupid. Adam Adam does the same thing. Adam says, you eat of it. Go ahead, try it. It'll be good. And he stands back, and he's waiting for her to die. Like, he's waiting for her to take the bite and just drop, and then he can be like, well, okay. And, he, and it's only after she lives through it that he takes of it. Satan tells a half-truth. Yeah, that you won't die immediately. What he doesn't tell them is the death that they bring upon themselves. What he doesn't tell them is that now they are under the condemnation of God. Now they, now they deserve death. 
Now they have brought death not only on themselves, but on every generation that will come after them. Not only have they brought death upon humanity, but they have brought death into all of creation. Yeah, he was right in a little part, but he forgets to tell the whole picture. He says that your eyes will be opened, that you'll know wisdom. Well, yeah, their eyes were opened, but what was it open to? Open to the guilt and to the shame that they had never known. He says that you'll be like God. And, and God even says they have become like us. If you look there at the end of the chapter, he says they're like us now. But we were never intended to be God. We cannot handle that power. We cannot handle that information. And instead of making us better, what has it done? It has brought us into great corruption. Look at the world around us. It all starts with a lie, a half-truth, something to entice us, which leads to the desire. It leads to the desire. We see things that we don't have and we want it. Everybody does this. Every, every young person has been told, don't do this, and we have done it anyway. We want what we can't have. We pursue it with everything that we have. And Eve does the same thing here. She sees the fruit and she says, ooh, that looks good. I know that I'm not supposed to have it, but man, I want it. And so she takes of it, which leads to the final failure. It's a failure on so many levels. A failure of all who participated, man and woman. We see the failure of the woman. She was created to be a confidant, created to be a helpmate created to be an encourager to one that makes the work go better and yet she ends up being the one that gives the greatest temptation she ends up being the conduit for the for the fall of man we see the failure of man as a caretaker man was supposed to be the guardian of the garden he was supposed to be the caretaker of all creation. His role in the relationship was to be that of the, the leader, the spiritual leader. And he had failed on all accounts. We see it. He was there. He heard the conversation. He heard what was going on. But Adam never spoke up to say, that's not true. That's not right. He never reached up to grab her hand and say, no, we're not supposed to eat this. He allowed it all to happen. He was, so, he was complicit beyond imagination. He failed in his responsibility. And they both fail for responsibility of their actions. It was bad enough that they had rebelled. It was bad enough that they ate of the fruit. The one thing that God told them not to do. But then their response is almost laughable. God comes to them and in great grace and mercy do you notice that he comes to them not like on a white horse with flaming sword ready to destroy. He comes to them walking in the cool of the day to ask them some questions. What have you done? You think God didn't know the answer? He knew the answer to that question. What have you done? What have you ate? Who did this? He wanted them to understand the, the gravity of what they had done. To, for them to admit. But do they do that? No. They... They push it off on somebody else. Adam may be worst of all. Adam looks and says, well, it was this woman who you created. 
He blames both woman and God. You created her. This is your fault. The woman says it was the serpent. We don't want to take responsibility. Adam and Eve don't want to take responsibility. We come up with all sorts of excuses. One of my mom's favorite stories to tell about me is when I was younger, Lisa and I were sitting with our, our grandmother who was watching us, and I walked up and I yanked a book out of my sister's hands and sat down with it, much to Lisa's chagrin, and there was much crying and wailing and gnashing of teeth, I'm sure. And my grandmother came over and asked me, why did you do that? And I said, Lisa can't read. Never mind the fact that I was four. It's not my fault that I did that. She should be able to read. If she can't, then she can't have the book. We all make excuses for everything we do. We justify. It's in our nature. As a four-year-old, we justify everything. Even what we know is wrong. Oh, that they would have confessed and said, we screwed up. What do we do now? How much different would this have been? You've experienced that as a parent and a child, both probably. Oh, that they would just confess. It would be so much easier. But that's not what happens. All of this rebellion, it leads to the curse, though. We have this great rebellion of man who listens to the lie, who falls prey to the desire, and who finally fails in such epic and and heartbreaking fashion and finds themselves now at the judgment and justice of God. And so we begin to see the curse. We're going to skip over the curse of the snake just for a moment and look at what God declares to man and to woman. It's interesting here, by the way, I I want you to see, just as we saw the grace and mercy of God to ask questions, we see the grace and mercy of God as well, not to curse them directly. Notice that to the snake, he says, you are cursed. But to Adam and Eve, he doesn't say you are cursed. Now, he says, this is cursed or this is going to be more difficult. But he doesn't curse them directly in great, great grace and great mercy. But a couple of things we see here. First, we see pain. The curse, the curse for rebellion brings about pain. For the woman, God goes at the very heart of who she is. He says, you will have pain in childbirth. Her name means mother of all living things. And yet, that very thing that defines her in this, in this fashion, she's going to experience with great hardship. Adam receives a similar thing. He says that man, man was created to work. He was created to be the guardian. It says that you will have great pain. It says thorns and thistles will bring forth, will, will, shall bring the, sorry, let me start that again. Thorns and thistles, it, the ground, shall bring forth for you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. No longer is work easy. The very thing that, God, that man was created for, the glorification of God through the work, through the guardianship, now that produces pain instead. We see it not only in the curse in pain, but we see it in frustration. The woman in frustration with relationships, which we're going to come back to. The man in the frustration of, of labor. 
Now he's going to experience broken tools. Now he's going to experience ground that does not want to be tilled. Now he's going to experience what it means to, to do one thing and not to see it prosper. It says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. No longer is this going to be easy toil. No longer is this going to be easy labor. So we see pain, we see frustration, we see broken relationships. The broken relationship between man and creation, now no longer is man just the guardian of creation, now no longer does it produce the way that it would have beforehand, but now he is in grave danger. All the natural disasters that we think of, all of those things were at peace before the rebellion, but now everything almost seems out to destroy him. Not only that, but the relationship between man and woman is broken. It says there at the end of verse 16, Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. No longer do they just simply understand and, 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 and enjoy the way they complement one another. But now the roles that they were given, they're going to want to exchange those roles. They're going to want to try to take the other's role from them. No longer is she going to be satisfied in the role that God created her for, but now she's going to want the role that is rightfully her husband's. And in turn, he is going to rule over here. This is, by the way, this is not, we need to understand this verse carefully. This is part of the curse, that man would hold dominion over her. This is not the way that it was intended to be. The way it was intended to be was as they compliment one another that he led with gentleness and love and respect. But this idea now is that that role has been twisted by sin. Now he will dominate or at least desire to dominate. Sin twists this relationship. And not only that, but maybe most heartbreaking of all, it bra- the broken relationship between God and man. God is a holy God who cannot stand sin. It cannot be in his presence. No longer does he dwell in the garden with Adam and Eve, but now he pushes them out. They are expelled from his presence. They still have a relationship with him. God does not totally abandon them. Praise the Lord. He does not abandon any of us. But it's different now. Now they're going to experience what we talked about earlier with prayers that seem to hit the ceiling. To not know the tangible presence of God. To not hear the sound of Him coming through the garden. All of that is gone. All of it's gone. The final part of the curse that we see here, not only do we see pain and frustration, broken relationships, but we see death. There at the end of verse 19. We'll just read the whole thing. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for dust. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. We don't know the plan that God had. For all we know, the plan before the rebellion was for them to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. For them to eat of that fruit and for them to live forever we don't but we don't know that we don't know what God's plan was here 
But we see very clearly that because of the rebellion, death enters the world. We see very clearly because of the rebellion that that is no longer the plan for, their, for these bodies to last forever. Now we find ourselves under consequence, as Romans says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And what is the consequence of such? The wages of sin is death. Now we do experience heartache. Now we do experience grief. Now we do experience disease that tears our loved ones away and destroys our own lives. All because of a curse. And let me, let me clarify something. I think so many times we come to salvation and we think it's all about me because that's what we like to think. But it's all about me. It's about what I have done wrong. And it, it is. Your sin is the reason that you're in the shape you're in. Your sin is part of your need for salvation. But understand that first and foremost, you are under the curse that was given to all of humanity in chapter 3. Our child is under the curse. He or she hasn't even been born yet. And they are under the curse of all humanity. He or she will know pain. He or she will know grief and sorrow and disease. He or she will sin. They will find themselves under the great consequences of that sin. It is a curse that you and I cannot escape from birth. This is the reality that we find ourselves in. It's not just about the sin that we've committed. It is about the fact that we are human and that we have been placed under this from the beginning. Now, this doesn't give us a a shrug of the shoulders to say, well, then it was inevitable. No, we have great responsibility. The, the, The word of God makes that clear. We cannot point and say, well, it's Adam and Eve's fault. That's why I'm in the shape that I am. That's not what I'm sharing with you. uh, What we need to understand, though, is that we are in great need of a Savior. Great need of a Savior, which praise the God, praise God that we have the curse to the snake. We have the promise of a Christmas to come. A Christmas to come. Man, we look through the curse to the snake and God proclaims war on the snake. He proclaims war on Satan and he gives him, this is kind of the play that's going to happen. This is how I'm going to defeat you. Look there in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So many great things here about the promise of what's going to happen. First, we see a prelude to Mary. We see a prelude to Mary here. Notice that he says that he will put enmity between the offspring of the woman and Satan and the snake. This is a culture where fatherhood was everything. Fatherhood was the most important. That's how you traced your lineage was back through your dad. It wasn't through your mom. And yet, God makes great emphasis, great point here to say, it is by her offspring. Why? It's, looking, it's a picture to look ahead. It's a picture of a virgin birth. A picture that what Satan desired for evil will now be 
for good. I, I love this about God, that he loves to take the plans of evil and turn them on their head. Satan saw woman as a helper. He saw what God had created her to be, and he goes, that's what I want to corrupt first. That's what I want to corrupt first. And so he goes after her, and he tricks her, and he's like, <laughs> I've, I've succeeded. God says, you desired that. You desired to use her for evil. But I'm going to use a woman to bring salvation into the world. What a thing that is. Not only do we see a prelude to Mary, but we see even what's going to happen with this offspring. It says, and between your offspring, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He tells Satan, look, this is war. It's on. You wanted this battle, you're going to get it. But the offspring of the woman, he is going to crush your head. He's going to strike you where you're vulnerable, and it will be over in that moment. The thing that you desired for victory will be the very thing that comes to your downfall. This is not over, and I will win, God declares. But it will be a costly victory. It'll be a costly victory. The verse doesn't end there. He says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. How does a snake kill a man, but usually to strike the foot or the heel or the lower extremity and to inject there its poison and, and to kill? God makes it clear that this, there will be victory over Satan. There will be victory over evil, but it will be costly. Oh, the cost of our salvation. That baby that is going to be born some 2,000 years ago into the arms of Mary will provide great salvation, but it will be through his own death on the cross. It will be by his blood that we can celebrate and know freedom from the curse that has been proclaimed. Let's not forget that. Mary didn't forget that. Mary had been told multiple times by, by those who held the baby, this child will cause you great heartache. Our salvation was not won without, with nothing. It did not come freely. God gave his most precious thing. He gave himself for us. Oh, that we would understand that and that we would celebrate it. That we would have great thankfulness, great worship, great joy, great rejoicing to know that even here in Genesis, where all of humanity bought into the lie of Satan, where humanity rebelled for the very first time to the God that had created them, where they had shrunk the responsibilities, shrugged off the responsibilities that God had given them good responsibilities. They had ignored them and they had went their own way. That God's grace and God's mercy is very evident from the beginning. Adam and Eve understood this costly victory even from the start. You look there at the end of the passage. What does God do? He says, he told them that if they ate that there would be death. He told them that, that that's what it would bring. But he does an act of great substitution. It says that he took animals and he made skins, right? He covered them with the skins of animals to make clothing for them. 
What has to happen in order for you to clothe yourself with skins? There has to be death. Can you imagine the horror of Adam and Eve when that happened? In my imagination, maybe this isn't the way it played out, but in my imagination, God said, look, you've rebelled, you've sinned, you need to see the consequences of that. And he calls them over. And whether it was a lamb or whether it was another animal, he slaughters that before them so that he can make these skins. Can you imagine the horror of Adam and Eve in that moment? They had never seen anything like that. And to know that it was their fault, to know that it was their responsibility for what was happening, and then to wear that, the great substitution for sin. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have been given a greater substitution. When Jesus Christ dies on that cross, let us understand that that is our responsibility. That it is at our sin that he hung there and died our death. That he paid our consequences. And yet, we don't just wear the skins of animals. We wear the robes of his righteousness. That is the memory that we are given. Oh, the gift of Christmas. I pray that we would celebrate it. I pray that we would remember it as we get busy, as we walk around, as we rush to this and to that. We would remember the great curse that we were under. We would remember the great Savior who was given him, gave himself as our substitute. And we would remember the great salvation that we now wear because of it. And that it would change how we celebrate. It would change how we worship. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and we're just going to have a time of response this morning. Maybe this morning, for the first time, God is opening your eyes to the curse. He's opening your eyes to your responsibility, to the fact that you have broken the great law of God, and now that you find yourself under these very things with broken relationships all around you. For the very first time, you understand that Christ died for you, that he could save you, that he could show you great grace and great mercy, that you don't have to face these consequences, these eternal consequences. I pray this morning that you would accept that grace. If you don't know what that looks like, we would love to talk to you about it. Maybe this morning you're a believer and maybe you just forgot some of these truths. Maybe, maybe this morning you just need to respond to the Lord in great Great worship and great repentance for forgetting. I pray, though, that you would join us this morning as we celebrate Christmas. As we celebrate Him coming to pull us out of sin. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning and, Lord, what a great thing it is. What an amazing thing it is that you have done for us. You saw us under the curse that we could not break. That you saw us under the consequences that we could not pay, though it would take an eternity. And you loved us. Your creation. Your children. That you made the greatest substitution of all when you allowed Christ to die the death that I should have died. When you allowed Christ to, to suffer the punishment that I should have suffered. And then you rose from the grave, Jesus, three days later, that you might de defeat death and sin on my behalf and on behalf of all those 
who would trust in you. Father, I pray that we would never forget that. I pray that we would never take it for granted, Lord, as we go through the hustle and bustle of this Christmas season, as we as we rush around to try to, to please other people, that we would not forget to stop and to recognize you, to please you with our worship and with our obedience. I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would stand with us this morning, join us in worship.